Welcome to Spiritual Psychology. My name is Renee LaValle McKenna, and I bring my 30 plus years as a recovering addict and ex crazy person turned therapist and shamanic healer to bring you snackable teachings on spirituality, psychology, and all things personal growth. And today I want to talk about tribal shame. So, shame is a really powerful and complex emotion characterized by a deep sense of embarrassment, guilt, or disgrace. It's often more of a body sensation than it is a thought pattern, although certainly there can be self-shaming thoughts engaged in shame. It often comes up when somebody perceives that they violated some kind of personal or societal standard. Basically, they've done something wrong, and there's this immediate response of inadequacy and unworthiness. But different than guilt, which is also associated with making some kind of an error or mistake, guilt is associated with the event or the behavior. We feel bad for something we've done or said. Shame is when we feel bad about who we are. It can be triggered by real events or just our patterned ways of perceiving experience. And shame influences our behavior, our self-esteem, and certainly our personal relationships. Now, certainly shame is kind of a fundamental aspect of human sociology and psychology, and it plays a big role in shaping our moral and social behavior. Cultural and family religious norms are usually held in place by some form of shame. So both shame and guilt are internalized structures that we can develop really early, even as extremely young children, to get a sense of what is right or wrong in our particular circumstance. So given whatever the family, societal, or cultural norms are, people will feel shame about different behavior. So to give a radical example, adults having sex with teenagers. In ancient Greece, particularly during the classical period, of maybe the 4th and 5th centuries BC, there were cultural practices and attitudes that a relationship between an adult male and an adolescent boy was okay. This could be called pederasty, and its acceptance varied across different Greek city-states and different time periods across ancient Greece. And these adult male-boy relationships involved mentorship, education, and sometimes a romantic and sexual aspect. So the word pederastia, which translates into love of boys, is not really accurate to modern pedophilia because it doesn't involve prepubescent boys. So in some Greek cities like Sparta, pederastic relationships were explicitly accepted. In other places like Athens, they eventually enacted laws that limited those relationships. And although Socrates condemned pederasty, in some of Plato's writings, he considers it a superior form of love compared to that of women. And there's a possibility that having a homoerotic experience with an older man may have even been seen as a rite of passage into the military or even into religious life. And shocking though that might be to the modern Western mind, it's shocking because we have cultural, religious, and societal taboos around having sex with teenagers against the law. But that also varies widely between cultures. Same-sex or homosexuality is still criminalized in 65 countries around the world. 12 countries still have the death penalty for homosexuality. 
And this isn't antiquated. Uganda just made one of the strictest anti-gay laws just last year. On the other side of that, I managed an art nonprofit, art in every classroom for about 10 years. And we provided art materials and funding for teachers in classrooms, actually worldwide. And one of the schools we supported was in South Sudan, Africa. And we eventually had to shut down that program because of the civil war and level of unrest in the country. We actually weren't able to get materials there safely. And the program was at St. Bahita's School for Girls, run by the Sisters of Mercy of the Catholic Church. Wonderful organization. And I had the great privilege to befriend many very generous and amazing nuns who helped us with that program. And so St. Bahita's was a boarding school and culturally, in South Sudan, girls were not educated. And in fact, their social security system was such that they had a dowry when a girl was married off, which means that the man would actually pay for his bride in some ways. It was a gift. They didn't call it buying a girl. But and they would often give them cattle or goats, 50 or 100 or 200 goats. And that was the social security system for the aging parents. It's a cultural practice that had been done for thousands of years, and often the girls were married off to men who were much older than them, and sometimes they were promised in marriage as early as 10 or 12 years old. Now, it would depend on the health of the family if the girl got to leave her house and be a wife that early, but she could get married as early as 12 or 13. And once she was married, it was up to the husband if he was going to wait or have sex with her as a young girl. And there's actually physical dangers in getting pregnant that young in your life. But they started St. Bahita's school partly to save these girls and give them another pathway. And often the girls would go off to this boarding school and never return or see their families again. And there were many in the culture who thought this was a terrible idea. And it was not uncommon for uncles or brothers to come and kidnap the girls and drag them back to the village so that they could get married. Now, we can have a lot of judgment about any of the things that I just said, but that judgment comes from cultural norms, how we're raised to believe what is right, what is okay, appropriate, healthy, acceptable. And that can be radically different family to family, culture to culture, religion to religion. And tribal shame or tribal acceptance is what holds that in place. And I use the word tribal because we all have tribal consciousness within us. Millions or hundreds of thousands of years ago as we evolved, the first social organizations were tribes. And many highly evolved animal species have complex social organizations as well. With humans, we brought it to the next level. But certainly wolves, apes, whales, flocks of birds organize themselves into social units. And early in human evolution, the tribe was essential for our survival. Maybe there were some lone wolves out there living out in the wilderness, but it was safer, easier, and maybe even essential to be a part of a tribe. And the tribes developed cultural norms. And we can imagine that those are widely different culture to culture. Over time, we have enacted laws to stop brothers and sisters or even first cousins from marrying each other because 
We've come to realize that there's a much greater possibility of genetic problems when people from the same bloodlines have children. But in many places, like the island of Hawaii, for example, historically, it was okay for royalty to marry royalty, even brothers and sisters to get married. Now, Levitical law, ancient Jewish law in the Bible, forbids these close family sexual or marriage relationships. But in Genesis 20, Abraham states that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister. And I say all that because I think it can be really helpful and important to question our cultural norms and particularly our shameful relationships with them. It really demonstrates how arbitrary tribal shame can be and what's acceptable at one time in history or in one particular culture could put you in prison in another. And how tribal shame works for most of us personally is through what's considered acceptable or unacceptable behaviors or attitudes or ways of being within our family. Now, certainly, I know of more than one person who has been exiled from their family due to their homosexuality. I had a friend who was a Mormon and happened to be gay, and his family was super religious. He went to Brigham Young University and had a secret relationship with another young man. They were discovered, they were both expelled, and his family completely cut him off. They refused to speak to him. They wouldn't send him any money. He actually ended up on the street in Mexico. He became a drug addict and prostituted himself so that he could survive. Ultimately, his family recanted, and he did develop a relationship with them again. But it took a long time because he was unwilling to pretend he was heterosexual. And ultimately, it was a developmental expansion for everyone. I met him. He was clean and sober for a couple of years, and there was a lot of healing that had happened. But that kind of tribal shame is really intense to risk getting expelled. And it can be, in some ways, for much subtler things. There can be family expectations to have a certain amount of success. And if you fall short of that, you are shamed or rejected. I remember in the movie Dead Poets Society, one of the main characters in this really intense boarding school for boys, his father wants him to become a doctor like he is. And he discovers theater and wants to become an actor. He invites his father to come see him in a play. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, his father forbids him from doing theater. And the boy kills himself. I've watched many people who get clean and sober struggle with tremendous shame about their addiction or alcoholism. Naming themselves as an alcoholic or a drug addict feels incredibly shameful. It may even keep them from getting into recovery because they want to be quote-unquote normal. I have a dear friend who's an artist whose parents are really hardworking business people, and although they try to support her, she knows deep inside they don't approve. They don't understand. They value putting your nose to the grindstone, working 50, 60 hours a week, and making a lot of money. Spirituality, art, yoga are not important or valuable to them. And she has really had to do a lot of work to break free of the cultural norms of her family and some internalized shame about being different. It's very common for there to be an unwritten family agreement to stay dysfunctional. The idea that water seeks its own level and 
Families may actually unconsciously resist if a family member tries to get well, to get out of generational patterns of dysfunction or abuse. And families may shun or neglect that person or reject them. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than we are now. If they move out of poverty, get educated, have levels of health and success that the other family members weren't able or willing to achieve. So tribal shame is rooted in adhering to the norms and kind of written or unwritten laws of our family, our culture, our religion, and our tribe. And luckily, we live in a time and a place where we have incredible options. Evolutionarily, many of us are individuating out of these more tribal organizations, belief structures, and we have more opportunities to do that than ever before. Now, we don't have to do that, but if we want to, we can, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And one of the conscious or unconscious blocks around becoming our unique and individual self can be this tribal shame. Now, I'm not saying people should go out and have sex with teenage boys or marry their sister. I just give those as examples. If you're in a place of questioning what's right and wrong, and it's certainly there's a lot of great social norms out there, but I think it's important for each of us to do the work to go within ourselves and decide our own moral code. And that is part of the path of maturity and authenticity. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out my YouTube channel. I've got a lot of great interviews coming up on that. Thanks as always to my supporters on Patreon and through this podcast. Blessings on your path until we meet again. This is Renee LaValle McKenna for Spiritual Psychology.